has been the book of Proverbs, um, it is a special Sunday. We have visitors from afar, a distant land called Texas. And so it's good to have the Lowe's and the Brownings with us today. And uh, of course, we all know of the recent events in re past months concerning, uh, concerning, concerning all the issues that have arisen as of late. And so I wanted to talk about Really, I think what, as I've thought about everything that's happened here recently, I think I've settled on what I think is the root or fundamental issue and problem that has been taking place. And I don't want to just speak of this in relationship to what's happening down south, but even in relationship to our own ministry and, and to our own church. Because I do believe that this was a fundamental uh, lack or sin that was happening here primarily under my leadership. And so I think the primary responsibility there is upon me, and to correct that is upon me as well, but also upon all of us to move forward and to do what's good and right in the sight of God. And that's why we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 13 today. Because again, I think the fundamental problem is a corrupt understanding of love and a complete lack of love. Uh, that's taking place in the churches. Hatred in the guise of love, or uh, in the name of love, no love, and that's not good. That's not good, and it's very important that we have a proper understanding of love and that it's nothing to be ashamed of to want to love people and to be kind and compassionate and merciful to people, to be patient and long-suffering and to bear with one another. These are not blights in the Christian life. These are the virtues that make us glorious in the sight of God. And if we don't have these virtues, then according to this passage, we have nothing. And we are nothing before God. So I want to read 1 Corinthians 13 and then do a short exposition of, of this passage. And actually, it really picks up, this is also a good example of Four chapter divisions in the Bible. The chapter divisions are not themselves inspired, but were added later uh, by men to make it easier to navigate. And really, this topic is brought up in chapter 12, verse 31, and then it's discussed in its full in chapter 13. So chapter 12, verse 31 says, And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then 
I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that you are, Lord, that you are the God of love, and it is your great love for your people, Lord, your great love for us, Lord, that has resulted in our salvation, Lord, a love that you set upon us before the very foundations of the world, and that, Lord, apart from your love and your goodness, your mercy and kindness to us, Lord, we would have never come to know you, because Your love is seen not in that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But Lord, if we have experienced such love and mercy from you, then Lord, that love will be poured into our hearts and it will overflow in love within us and that we also will want to be like our heavenly father that we also will want to love you and to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we know that the entire law can be summed up in this one word, that we are to love. And so, Father, we pray that you would, Lord, that you would grow this virtue within us, that, Father, this fruit of the Spirit, Lord, that is there listed first in, in the order of rank, Lord, that it would be preeminent within us and that it would be preeminent in this church. Lord, that we would be a people who are known by their love for one another. Father, we do not want to be compromisers. Lord, we don't want to, uh, to compromise on the truth. Lord, to be cowards or weaklings. Lord, we want to stand for what is true and right. But Lord, we pray that you would teach us how to do so in a way that is consistent with love and patience and long-suffering with others. So, Lord, help us and give us discernment, Lord, that we might manifest that we truly are your children and that this adoption of ours would be made known in the love that we have for one another. So, Lord, teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Again, here, the focus of this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is love, right? It is the chapter that is called the love chapter, right, in the Bible, because this is what he is unfolding. What is love? Why is it important? What does it look like? And it's enduring quality or it's enduring benefit. Now, this passage is set here in Corinthians within the, the context of controversies that are taking place within the church. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. And the purpose of the spiritual gifts, as they have been uh, distributed to the church through the Holy Spirit, right, according to the will of God. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is for mutual edification, right, not for the honoring of the individual person who has it, not so that he can promote himself, exalt himself above others, look down upon others, but rather these gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit according to his will for the mutual benefit of the church. And in order for these gifts to be properly exercised, there must be love for one another. Otherwise, we're just going to use it for our own self-promotion, and this is often the problem within the churches. There is love in the church, but the love is love of self, not love of God and not love of our neighbor. And this is why at the end of chapter 12, he says there has to be a better way. There has to be a proper way 
to obtain to possess spiritual gifts and to exercise them in the church so that it results in glory to God and the edification of our brothers. But if this is lacking, if there is no love, then these gifts given for the benefit of the church are going to tear the church apart. Instead of love, there's going to be envy. And when there is envy and jealousy and evil suspicions and strife, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be turmoil. And instead of the church being built up and grounded in love, there's going to be constant bickering and fighting in the church. We're going to bite and devour one another. And this is why he's saying the importance of love. Love must be central to everything that we do. And it is a necessary virtue in the exercise of the gifts in the church and also in the way that we relate to one another. And if we don't love each other, it is so clear in the Bible that if we don't love each other, then we do not know the love of God. The love of God does not exist within us. And if God doesn't love us, we're going to hell. This is how, this is a matter of life and death. This is how important it is that we love one another and that we understand what that looks like. And this is why we have this chapter, so that it's crystal clear of what it means to love one another. So let's look here at chapter 13. We'll begin with verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3 are dealing with the necessity of love, the necessity of love in the local church. First, he says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here are all of the things that he will bring up, these conditions or these ifs. If this is true of me, but love is lacking, then I become nothing. These are all things that the Corinthian church, that they are aspiring for, things that they desire and they want uh, very much to have. They want these gifts, right? And some of the gifts are more honorable in that they're more outward. They bring more attention upon the person such as the gift of tongues. If someone has that gift, it is an outward gift. It is a spoken gift. It is one that gives you some position, some authority, some recognition within the church. And this is why they are greatly desiring these types of miraculous, wondrous gifts, because in that gift, a lot of attention goes to who? To the person that possesses it. And so they are desiring these kinds of gifts, but they're not desiring it for the right reason. They're not wanting it for the benefit of the church and for the glory of God, but rather so that they themselves might be promoted, so that they would have some self-adulation, that people would honor them and give them recognition in this way. But here he says, if you possess the tongues of men, and even if you possess the tongue of an angel, if you speak in these kind of eloquent ways, if with the gift of tongues, or you know many languages, even if you know a language of the angels, but you do not have love. If love is missing from the equation, then you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just making noise, doing this type of banter here and there, but you're no better than some, some stupid instrument, right? You're just a gong, a clanging cymbal. You are of no value in the sight of God. Though men may esteem you very highly, though men may fawn all over you because you have this ability in the sight of God, you're detestable because you are lacking in this attribute, this virtue that is essential to the Christian life. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I 
am nothing. Again, these are outward gifts, outward things that typically give people veneration in the sight of men. Are the source of honor, of prestige, of being lifted up, of being exalted, of gaining attention. The gift of prophecy, being able to prophesy concerning future events, right? To know these types of hidden secret things. The knowledge of all mysteries. All knowledge, he says, all knowledge. In this present life, is there any man that possesses all knowledge? No one possesses all knowledge. But even if someone could obtain all knowledge of the will of God, of the things of God, knowledge of the world, the natural order, how things work, if you have all of these things, but you have no love, you're nothing. Even, he says, if I have all faith. Now here, of course, he doesn't mean true saving faith, because it's impossible to have true saving faith and to be lacking in love. But wasn't it true that Judas Iscariot had a type of faith? And even in that type of faith, he was able to remove mountains, not in a literal sense, but didn't Judas Iscariot perform miracles? Didn't he raise and do those types of things, uh, cast out demons, perform various miracles, heal those who were blind, these types of things? He did all of those things, so there was a measure of faith within him, but was he acceptable in the sight of God, Judas Iscariot? Of course not, right, because he was lacking in love. He had no love of God. And he had no love for his fellow man. And that was all seen in the way that he treated Christ. He did not serve the Lord his God, Christ, nor did he serve the Son of Man, who was Jesus Christ, but he betrayed him in that way. If we have these things, we possess them, but we do not have love, then what are we, according to this passage? He says we're nothing. We have absolutely nothing. 1 John chapter 4 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If one says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also, if someone says, I love God, everyone says that they love God. This is the claim of many people, yet he hates his brother. That man, he says, is a liar. Because how can you love, your, how can you love God whom you've never seen and not love your brother whom you do see? He says it's a contradiction. It's impossible for this to be true. This is the commandment that we ought to love one another, and we should love the brothers. And if we love God, we ought to love his people and love his children. Chapter, or verse 3. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Here, giving all possessions to feed the poor. That is a very commendable action. That would receive great adulation in the sight of men. Look at how generous he is. Look at what he's done. And yes, there are people, even unbelieving people, who will give great gifts, give great uh, swaths of money away to feed the poor, to help those who are destitute, to help those who are in need. But if in doing these actions, 
this person is lacking in true love of God and true love of neighbor, then what benefit is it? How does it commend him in the sight of God? It does absolutely no good. We know from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, that one of the things the hypocrites did, the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, is that they did give. They gave alms to the poor, and they sounded a trumpet when they did so, so that everyone would know what it is that they are doing. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Here, even acts of charity can be done with the motivation of self-love. You're not doing it because you love God and because you love your fellow man. You're doing it primarily because you love yourself and because you want praise of men. That's why he's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness in this way. But when you're giving to the poor, why does anyone need to know about it? Why do you only give to the poor on the condition that your name be published in the paper or that they put your name on the side of the building or that they give you some honor or some title? You shouldn't be doing it that way, he says. Your left hand shouldn't know what your right hand is doing. No one needs to know it, right? You just do it in secret, and God, who sees in secret, will reward you on the day of judgment because to do it in the proper way, you're doing it for God and you're doing it for man. You're not doing it for yourself, but rather you're doing it for them. So it is possible for people to give, to give away even all their possessions to the poor yet to not do it with the right principle, and the principle being love. Without love, it is nothing. Also, he says, if I surrender my body to be burned, to be burned, right? Those who are martyrs, who suffer, who die for the faith. And there are people in the history of the world who have died for their false faith. There are Muslims who will kill themselves to, you know, kill some infidels, fly planes into buildings, Right? Are they going to be commended by God because of they burned themselves in the fire? They were able, they were so devoted to their false religion that they were willing to die for this cause? So there are people who will do this, whether that be Muslims or Hindus, unbelieving Jews in the Middle Ages. They were willing to suffer and die because they didn't want to become Christian or they didn't want their children to be converted by infidels. Cults will do this. Roman Catholics will do this. Right? All of them are willing to die for their beliefs. But just because you die for your belief, does that mean you're acceptable in the sight of God? Even if you're burned in the fire. Well, if you don't have true love for God and true love for your neighbor, then it doesn't benefit you at all. It's of no value in any way. Now, the point being here in these first three verses, these are all either exceptional gifts or exceptional acts of devotion. And again, in the right context, there's nothing wrong with honoring people like this. There's nothing wrong with honoring a true martyr in the faith, such as righteous Stephen, who was willing to die, was stoned to death for his faith. But Stephen was doing it for the right reasons. Just the act itself is not enough. If the act is not motivated, is not proceeding from a true heart, from the proper principle, and that principle, the primary thing, 
is the virtue of love. And if love is absent from that, then it is no good at all. It is actually worthless and detestable in the sight of God. These are all gifts and acts that are typically esteemed in the eyes of men. Yet if these gifts and acts are failing in love, if the gifts are not practiced in love, if the acts are not motivated by love, then in God's sight, it is nothing. It is worthless. It is useless and detestable. And we know that Jesus said that that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Just because something has the praise and adoration of men does not mean that it is acceptable to God. It must be judged by more than what we simply see. We have to judge it on the basis of faith, of love, of true righteousness. What is motivating? What is the driving principle of these things? Love is the only rule for all of our actions. Love is the rule that governs everything that we do. It is the only means for regulating the proper use of the gifts. And nothing in the absence of love is approved by God. However it may be esteemed in the eyes of men, where love is lacking, all that we are and all that we do is detestable in the sight of God. Isn't the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. It is set there on purpose, intentionally. Because again, love is this primary dominating virtue by which all other virtues flow out. Didn't Jesus teach us that the whole law and the prophets can be summarized in two laws, two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. The whole sum of the Christian life can be summed up in that one word, that we are to love. Love God and love our neighbor. And in Romans 13, verse 8, it says, Oh, no one anything except what? To love one another. Love one another. This is what our obligation, our duty is both before God and before man. And that's the point he's making here. If there is no love, then what, what are we doing? Right? What is the purpose of all of this? All of this gathering together, all of this study, right? all of this talk and conversation. What is the point of, of any of this if we are lacking in love for God and love for our fellow man? But when there is true love, then all of these things are beneficial. Beneficial to us, pleasing in the sight of God, they bring glory and honor to him. So we have to see that love then is central to everything that we do. Okay, verses four to seven. Here he defines what love is or what it looks like. Verses four to seven. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here he begins by stating that love is patient. Love is patient with who? With everyone, right? With our fellow man, especially in the household of faith. We are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. 
So the primary object of our love should be the household of faith. Not that it ends there. It should extend even to our enemies, but it must begin in our own homes with our wives and our children and in the household of faith. And love is, at its very beginning, it is patient. And this is necessary because who among us is perfect? Who among us is without sin? He who is out without sin, let him cast the first stone, Jesus said in John chapter 8. None of us are perfect. We all have the flesh. We're all progressing in our sanctification. So whether it be in the home or whether it be in the church or wherever we go, are there not always going to be offenses that we have one to another? Don't we have to be patient with each other and to help each other grow? But if we are exacting and we expect instant sanctification, instant perfection in all the people all at once, who can meet up to that expectation? It's impossible. This is why we have to be patient with one another, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Isn't this the way God is toward us? If anyone has a right to be exacting and demanding, it's the Lord God himself. But does he cast us off at the first indiscretion? Does he throw us away because we sin against him in so many ways? Do we not have many failings, many sins against God each and every day? But does God reject his people? No. He does not reject us. When we are unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Patience in the church toward one another, this promotes peace and harmony in the church. And this is the way it should be. We should be patient and tender toward one another in the way that we endure each other and we help each other overcome whatever imperfections, whatever sins, whatever things, failings, frailties, whatever it is we want to call it. We have to help each other and be a benefit to one another and be patient with one another. And again, many times these things may take years for us to overcome them, right? To gain victory over them. And oftentimes that progress is by baby steps, two steps forward and one step back. But over the course of time, God's perfect work within us will be brought to completion. And God is patient with us, so we ought to be patient with one another. Next, he says that love is kind. Love is kind. Here, again, it's not churlish, it's not mean, it's not rude in this way, but it is kind to people. We should be people of kindness, right? We ought to even be kind to our animals, even though sometimes they really get on our nerves. But we should be kind to them. We should be kind to our enemies, kind to our children, kind to our fellow men, kind toward those who are here in the church. Again, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. It is not becoming of a Christian to act like a jerk all the time, to be mean-spirited, right? To be hostile toward people. This is not... Uh, behavior that is becoming of those who bear the name of Christ. We should be kind and compassionate toward one another. Next, he says, it is not jealous. Love is not jealous of others. When another man has gifts that are greater than mine, this is the deal that's going on in the Corinthian church. Some people have these gifts that are perceived to be greater because they have more honor attached to them. Just as in the body, there are some parts of the body that have a more honorable position and some parts that are less honorable. But all the body parts are necessary for the making up of the whole body. And this is the problem. If the eye is envious of the ear, or if the foot is envious of the hand, 
then what are you going to have within the body? Turmoil, fighting, friction, right? It's going to tear itself apart. It's going to devour itself because each member is envious one of the other. Instead of seeing how each one of them is brought in by God for the benefit of the whole body, right? To build up the whole body. If all the body is an eye, then where is the sense of smell? Where is the sense of hearing, right? If all of the body are hands, how are we going to walk to and fro and get where we need to go, right? It's not going to work, but you need all of these parts in order to make up the whole body. But if the individual members are jealous one of another, then it's going to be chaos, friction, constant fighting, turmoil within the church, either jealous of their gifts or jealous of their blessings. Do all of us have an equal standing in society? Do all of us have the same exact uh, pay, the same size of a house, the same kind of cars? No, some people have greater blessings than others from God, according to the will of God. And if someone has more than me, should I be envious and jealous of them in the body of Christ? Or should I rejoice in the blessing of God upon that man? I should rejoice. But if there's jealousy, then I'm going to be envious of him, critical of him. I'm going to be suspicious. Oh, he just loves money, right? That's the only reason that he has these types of things. Where, where does that come from? It's not coming from love, right? It's coming from jealousy and envy and these types of things. A great example of this is in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, this is Moses. It shows you, like we read earlier from Numbers chapter 12, yes, Numbers chapter 12, about Moses, his humility. Well, in chapter 11, Moses isn't upset, but Joshua is. Joshua, who himself is a godly man, he's upset because they have appointed these other 70 elders, and they're all prophesying. They're all prophesying, and Joshua is afraid that it's going to detract from the position and authority of Moses among the people. And so he's saying to Moses, you need to stop them from doing this, right? And notice how Moses responds. It says in verse 27, So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. His perspective was, I wish all of them were prophets. I wish that I didn't have to have this position, but that all of them were like this. I don't care if it takes away from my glory, because Moses isn't doing it for his own glory. He wants all of the people of God to be filled with the spirit in this way, because he has genuine love for them. Next, it says that love does not brag. Does not brag. A braggart, right? One who likes to tell everyone how wonderful they are, how gifted they are, how talented they are, all of their accomplishments, right? And they say these things because no one else is saying it about them. They say it to you so that you will join in in praising them in all of their accomplishments and gifts. But true love is not concerned with personal glory and honor, but rather prefers the glory of others over themselves. Isn't that what we see there with Moses in chapter 11? He's concerned with the 
glory of God. He doesn't care about his own glory and position and honor among the people. It's only insofar as it promotes their good and benefit. And it also promotes the glory of God. Well, yeah, he'll take it then, but he's not concerned personally, right, about his own good in that way. This is like John the Baptist when everyone was going after Christ and his own disciples were saying, well, they're all leaving you and going after him. He said, well, he must increase and I must decrease. He's not concerned with his own fame and fortune, but rather he's happy for people to follow Christ. He's not a braggart in that way. Next, love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't have this type of arrogance where it perceives itself, the person, as superior, as greater to everyone else. Right? And again, essential to this. Now, again, there is a distinction that will be manifested in the church in terms of maturity. Yes, it may be in terms of knowledge, in terms of understanding, in terms of gifting. Right? It may be that one obtains a higher, a greater faith than another. One is strong in faith and one is weak in faith. But in the one who is governed by love, this will not lead him to arrogance because he understands, what do I have that I have not received? So yes, I may have a larger measure of faith than my other brother, but that's because of the gift of God. It's not anything in me. So why am I going to be arrogant toward him? Why am I going to look down upon him when all I have has been given to me as a gift from God? And that is true in no matter what it is. Whatever giftings, whatever talents, whatever natural abilities that we have, all of it comes as a gift from God. So how can it ever lead to arrogance and us looking down upon our fellow man? And yet this is what often happens. It often happens, and especially in relationship to one particular thing in chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Here specifically he singles out knowledge as a source of arrogance in men. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be dumb. It doesn't mean that we should be unknowledgeable of the will of God. Of course, we need to know the will of God. We need to grow in the will of God. But when knowledge increases, we have to increase in humility as well. And we always have to have the perspective that whatever knowledge I obtain in the Christian life of the will of God, and whatever natural abilities God has bestowed upon me that arise me to obtain these types of things, Everything I have is a gift from God. So why should I boast as if it were dependent on me, as if it came from me? We have to have the right perspective, right? This is both love of God and love of neighbor. Arrogance shows that we don't love God because we're taking glory for ourselves that belongs to God as the bestower of good gifts. And it also doesn't have love of neighbor because it exalts itself over and above our neighbor. And we shouldn't do that. Next, it says that love does not act unbecomingly. Unbecomingly, meaning in a way that is uh, unbecoming of a Christian. There is a certain way that Christians should behave. 
we ought to be honorable in the sight of God and in the sight of men. And our behavior should be above reproach. And we should not stoop down to certain levels like unbelievers do, right? When Jesus was reviled, did he revile in return? When they cursed him, did he curse back? When they slugged him in the face, did he slug back? He didn't do any of those things, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When they sling mud at us, should we sling it back? No, because that's unbecoming of a Christian. Well, love does not behave in this unbecoming way. It is not uh, uh, doing these types of ridiculing, the scoffing, the mocking, these types of things that are unbecoming of a Christian. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It says in Romans chapter 12, 17 to 20, do not repay evil for evil. That would be unbecoming to do that. But instead, he says, we have to give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. We have to live above reproach and do what is good, right, and pleasing in the sight of God. Next, he says that love does not seek its own. Right, Our natural inclination, the inclination of the flesh, is to seek our own good, our own advantage, over and against our brother. But love teaches us to not be concerned only with our own interests, but also with the interest of others. No one has to teach us how to love ourselves. Right, This is natural and common. We have to be taught how to quit loving ourselves too much. Now, there is a proper place for us to love ourselves, to take care of our own need, to love our bodies, to do those things that are good and necessary for our own life, and we ought to do that. But we should not do that exclusively. We should not do that to the exclusion of our neighbor and of our brother. But rather, we are to seek their good as well, not only our own good, but also the interests of others. Next, it says that love is not provoked. It is not provoked by personal offenses. Now, love will be provoked, such as the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, when he saw the city full of idols, he was provoked with the idolatry, and then he preached the gospel to them. But many times, when we are provoked, when we become angry, it's not because we're concerned about the glory of God, but we're concerned about the glory of who? The glory of ourselves. Because someone offended me. Someone did something that upset me. Well, love is not easily provoked in this way. It will be provoked when God's glory is on is at stake, but not when it's my own glory or my own honor or some personal offense that is done to me. We should not be easily aroused to anger, to offense, so that every minor infraction that's committed against us turns into an occasion for, you know, uh, these long drawn out meetings that wear everyone out, right? We shouldn't be living in this type of, of, of way. Can we do that in the home with our children every time they commit some minor offense? Not that we shouldn't correct it, but does it need to turn into a 10-hour family meeting to address all these things? Who can live like that, right? It'd be misery to be under that type of rule and that type of unloving atmosphere. Next, he says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not keep a ledger a notebook, a record of wrongs that have been committed, storing these things up that they might be dropped and used at a later date whenever it's convenient and you need to destroy this person. We should not do that, right? We should not be holding grudges 
and keeping a, a record of these things only to bring them up and use them when they're expedient to us for whatever purpose we have at a later date. Love does not do that. And when there is a wrong and the person repents, then what should we do? We should forget it. We should move on, right? We shouldn't hold it against them. Does God hold it against us when we sin against him many times, many ways, every single day? No, he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. So shouldn't we do the same thing for one another? Again, not that we're being gullible, not that we're being naive, not that we're doing things that are stupid. Of course, he doesn't mean it in that sense. But using it in this kind of vindictive way to use it against our neighbor whenever it's expedient, that is contrary to the principle of love, and it is unbecoming of a believer. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Here, now, in the past, this is the verse that is used to undermine the rest of the chapter. This is the verse that has been used, the aspect of love, to rule over everything else so that we can justify not having patience, not having kindness, right? We can justify being easily provoked. We can justify acting unbecomingly because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but only rejoices in the truth. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that if there is unrighteousness or if there is a lie, that that means that we can act in an unbecoming way to that person, that we don't have to be kind and patient and gracious with them. No, he's not saying that we overlook it. He doesn't say that we sweep unrighteousness, that we sweep lies under the rug. Of course, he doesn't mean that. But you cannot use this phrase to subvert all of the attributes of love, right? That if there is unrighteousness, then I am no longer obligated to be patient, to be kind, to be gentle, to be merciful to others, that I can now be easily provoked, that I now can act in an unbecoming way, that I now can make fun of them, ridicule them, scoff them, make names up for them, call them every name under the book, do these things publicly, openly, outwardly, right, to the derision of my enemies. No, we should not do that. We must practice these things in the proper way. And even if there is unrighteousness, yes, of course we're not rejoicing in that, but it doesn't mean give us a license to be, to be a jerk toward people and to treat people in mean, cruel, hateful ways. If there is unrighteousness, then we should address it with patience, with calmness, with humility, with love, with gentleness, with pleadings, with our brother. That's the way that we should address it in a way that is consistent with Christian love, right? As is defined in this passage and in many other passages as well. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There, love bears all things, right? This is, again, the problem often is the parable of the talents, where the, not the parable of the talents, but the parable of the two servants. The one servant owed the king 10,000 talents, and then he had his fellow servant that owed him 100 denarii. And the one who was forgiven the 10,000 talents by the king, this is the way that we often are. We want God to bear with us, 
We want God to be long-suffering with us. We want Him to forgive us, not seven times a day, but 70 times seven times a day. And we need God to do that because if God should mark our iniquities, who could stand? None of us could stand before the Lord. This is the way God is with us. He bears with us. But then what are we often like? We're like that wicked servant who when his fellow servant couldn't pay him this small debt in comparison to what he owed the king, began to strangle him, demanded it. He was exacting of him. He had him cast into prison until he could pay every last bit. If we are like this, then we are proving that we do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we do not know the forgiveness of sins. Because how can we have our sins forgiven? How can God forgive us of a sea of iniquity And then we are unwilling to forgive our brothers when there is a a drop of sin. We won't bear with them in these infractions against us, but we want God to bear with us all of our life. No, we can't be like this. We have to bear with one another, with infirmities, to be gentle, to be patient, to be kind with one another. Naturally, the flesh. And again, we all have the flesh. I want to do right but evil lies close at hand, Romans chapter 7. This is the way it is, and it will be this way for the remainder of our life. And naturally, according to the flesh, we are spiteful, we are suspicious, and we take nearly everything amiss in the most negative light possible. We want everyone to interpret us in the most positive light possible, but then we turn around and interpret every single thing that someone does in the most negative light we can possibly do it. And what does it lead to? But conflict, controversy, biting, devouring of one another. It's not consistent with Christian love, which teaches us to bear all things, to bear with one another, right? Bear with one another believes all things. Again, of course, it does not believe all things that are lies, that are untruthful. Of course, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we believe the Mormons or that we believe the Jehovah's Witness and what they say about the person of Christ. Of course, we know that they are lying and we don't believe those things. But in terms of our Christian brothers, we should believe believe them, assume the best. If they say that this is what is true, then we should give them the benefit of the doubt and not have these suspicions constantly of one another that everyone is out to do evil all the time. Everything that everyone is doing is clouded, shrouded with uh, uh, schemes, deliberation, that there's all these intricate plans and things that are going on behind the scenes, and there's just evil abounding in everyone. Why would we do that toward one another? We don't want someone doing that to us, so why would we do it to others? We shouldn't. Hope's all things. Love hopes all things. Love believes in our brothers and sisters in Christ that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. That the salvation that they see being formed, that has begun in them, they are confident that not only will God complete their salvation, but they will complete all of yours as well. And we have this hope that we will be made perfect in the sight of God. We know what the outcome of our faith is. Well, if the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls, then what is the outcome of everyone else's faith? The exact same thing. So are we going to give up 
on our brothers and sisters in Christ? Aren't we supposed to press on in our own selves until we enter into the kingdom? Well, we need to do that with one another by bearing with each other and helping each other and encouraging each other to press on into the kingdom of God. And then lastly, it endures all things. Endures all things. This is how we have to be. We have to endure many things with one another because, again, no one is perfect. None of you are perfect like me. Listen, no, I'm just kidding. That's why we have to endure with each other. We all have our sins and our infirmities, and we're all seeking to overcome them. So we have to endure with each other and endure through many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God. Read the Gospels. Did Jesus not have to endure with his disciples? From start to finish, right? They're constantly doing things, saying things that are contrary to, to what he wanted and what he expected of them. But did he throw them all away? Smack them upside the head, say, I'm done with you people, right? I'm tired of you. Now, he did say that from time to time. How long will I have to bear with these people? But he continued to do so. He endured them, and he continued to work within him, affirming them, strengthening them, building them up in their faith. This is how love is defined. With all of these various attributes, love is like a diamond, right, with many facets. And each side you can look at and see some other dazzling jewel, right, some other sparkling uh, thing that you see there in love. And this is what our love should be like here toward one another. Okay, now the endurance of love. Verses 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Here, again, the church is lacking in love, but they want prophecies. They want knowledge. They want tongues. They want these things that will exalt them and give them preeminence here amongst the brothers, but they're lacking in the one thing that will never fail. So if love endures for all time, for all eternity, why are you not aspiring after it? Why are you focused on tongues, on knowledge, right, on wisdom, on these types of things, and you're not focused on love. Seeing that love will continue. This virtue does not only attain to this life, but also to the life to come, right? It will continue in both of these cases. Whereas these other things, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they are necessary, but when are they necessary? For what world? for the present world or for the world to come. We won't need them in the world to come. There will be no need of prophecy, of knowledge, not that we won't know in the world to come, but the growing in knowledge, the obtaining of knowledge, will have perfect knowledge in the life to come. There's no need for the gift of tongues in the life to come. But what is needful for the life to come? We need to love one another, and love will be perfected in the life to come. So if we're going to aspire after something, if we want something, that is going to be, make us illustrious in the sight of God, then we should be striving not for tongues, not for prophecy, not for knowledge, but for love. This is what should be driving us and what we should be pursuing. And then as God distributes these gifts with love as the focus, then they're going to be useful and beneficial to the church and to the glory of God and to my own Christian life as well. He says, we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Here, he's talking about 
this present life. In this present life, we know in part and we prophesy in part. No man has perfect knowledge. All men, even the Apostle Paul, who is greater than all of us, did not have perfect knowledge. And even whatever prophecies God has given among men, it is not prophecies in an understanding perfectly of every aspect of the will of God. There are some secret things, hidden things, that belong only to the Lord. And prophecy are those revealed things that are given to us in our, in our children. So even the prophets don't know everything about God. They are prophesying in part, revealing what is necessary, according to the will of God, for our salvation. But even they don't know everything there is to know about God. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Everything in this life is partial. We have it in a measure. We have it beginning in us, but it has not been brought to maturity, to its completed form. Everything here is partial. And when the perfect comes, whatever is partial will be done away with. Now he's going to define what that means as he goes on. Then he uses in verse 11 an analogy. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child, when I became a man, I did away with childish things, right? When we are children, which this is the problem with many people, they still are children. Even as adults, they still act like children. But typically speaking, there is a way of thinking and acting that pertains to children. And there are things that children do in their behavior and their thoughts in the way that they act that eventually they put those things away. There's not a lot of 50-year-old men who like to climb trees, right? That's not something that people do in their old age. But children love doing those kinds of things, right? It's an activity that they love to do. They love to do these types of things. So there are certain behaviors, certain thought processes that go along with being a child. And then when we become men, when we grow into maturity, we do away with those kinds of childish things, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Here, the childish ways are this present life. In this present life, we are like children, right? In our knowledge, in our understanding of God. In the life to come, we will put away these childish things, partial knowledge, partial understanding, and we will be made perfect. Then we will be mature in our salvation. Now we are like children, then we will be in maturity. Now we see in a mirror dimly. We see God, we understand his will, we do have a knowledge of those things, but it's like looking at our own face in a mirror that is dimly lit. But then we will see him face to face. Don't you have a fuller understanding and knowledge of a person when you see them face to face than when you're looking at them in a dim mirror? Not that you have no knowledge through the dim mirror. You have some knowledge, but you have a fuller, greater knowledge when you see them face to face. Well, when will we see Christ face to face? When he returns. We will see him as he is. We don't see him face to face now. Now we see him dimly in a mirror. We see him by faith in the word of God, but in the life to come, we will see him face to face. That is why in this world, there's necessary for tongues, 
for prophecy, for knowledge. Because we see dimly in a mirror. But none of those things will be necessary for the life to come. Because we will be in his presence and we will see him face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully just as we are fully known. You'll have no need of a teacher in the life to come. Because you'll know fully. You'll know God fully just as you are also fully known. Verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Here, these are three virtues necessary for the Christian life. Can you be a Christian without faith? Can you be a Christian without hope? Can you be a Christian without love? No, these are necessary, essential virtues, characteristics of the Christian life. We must have faith. We must have hope because we have not received the full realization of our salvation. We are hoping for it, right? We're knowing that we're going to get it, but in the life to come, not in this present world. And then love. These are essential. These three abide. But of the three, which is the greatest? Well, he says love is the greatest. And why is love greater than faith and hope? Because faith is necessary because we walk by faith and not by sight. We know God through his word. But in the life to come, we will see him face to face. Hope is necessary for this life because we're hoping for what we'll obtain in the life to come. But when we enter into the possession of it, will we hope for it anymore? It won't be a hope. It will be our possession. We will actually obtain it. Faith and hope are necessary for our Christian life now, but they're not necessary when we are in the presence of God and when we receive our hope. But what will still be necessary and what will actually be perfected in the life to come, even a greater measure, is love. We are to love God and love our neighbor now, and we do that in part but not perfectly because of the flesh. But in the life to come, what will be the Christian life? What is the life of heaven that we will lead? If you could sum it up in one word, what will it be? Love. Love of God and love of neighbor. And this is why this attribute is so essential, this virtue to the Christian life. And if we are void of love, then we're not fit for the kingdom of God. Because that is a world of love. That's what we need And this is what we must strive for. Where love is lacking, there will be strife, there will be divisions, there will be friction, fighting, constant conflict, and turmoil. And we shouldn't want to live like that in our homes, in our churches. Again, there are times when it's necessary to stand for the truth, to fight, to contend for the faith, and we need to do that whenever we are called to that. But to be constantly biting and devouring one another. That's not good. How is that helping anyone in the Christian life? And this is what I feel like has been happening in our church over the last year or last couple of years. Okay, two last passages and then we'll be dismissed. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Quarrels and conflicts. And what's the source of it? Your own 
lustful pleasures, your love of self that is waging war within you because you prefer yourself over everyone else. And so it leads to constant fighting and quarreling there in the body of Christ. And one last passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. There, again, controversial questions, disputes about words, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, constant friction. This is not becoming of a Christian to live in this way. And so we shouldn't strive for those things, but we should strive for peace with all men. That's what we should strive for. Now, again, it's not always going to be obtained, but even when there isn't peace, we can still act in a way that is becoming of a Christian and be above reproach and do what's honorable in the sight of all, like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then let's strive for the better way, a better way, which is the way of love, and seek to cultivate these things in our own lives, in our homes, in the church, then it'll be harmony and peace, and it'll lead to happiness, right? Godliness, it'll be good for everyone. So this is what we should strive for. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would cause your love, Lord, to abound within our hearts. Lord, help us to understand more and more the depth of your love. Lord, that we might understand it as, Lord, you have forgiven us of our sins through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that is where love is so clearly defined for us. He laid down his life for us. This is how we learn what love is. So, Father, help us to understand the gospel. Help us to better understand our own salvation. Lord, to understand your righteousness and our own sin and the sacrifice of Christ, what it is that he's done for us. And, Lord, we pray that as we more fully understand your love for us, that it would cause your love to abound in our hearts so that we love you by living a godly life and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, help us to cultivate love within our homes, Lord, within this church, wherever it is that we go. Lord, may we be defined, Lord, by this virtue. And may people see that we belong to you. May they know that we are your disciples because of the love we have one for another. So, Father, we pray that you would build us up in this way and that, Lord, you would continue to do your work within us until you bring it to completion when we see Christ face to face. Lord, give us safety as we now travel home. We pray that you continue to bless us this day. Lord, especially we pray for the Brownings and Lowe's, Lord, as they travel uh, back to Texas. Lord, that you would watch over them as they travel on the road. Lord, keep them safe and from all harm. And Lord, bring them safely back there to their home. And we pray for your blessing to be upon them. Lord, as they are seeking a new church, Lord, we pray that you help them 
and that you would, uh, Lord, bring them in a place where they might be shepherd, uh, shepherded and, Lord, fed, and that they might grow together with other believers there. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, and be with us and bless us in all things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.